This is Nullius in Verba, a podcast about science. What it is and what it could be. It's co-hosted by me, Smriti Mehta from UC Berkeley. And me, Daniel Lagens from Eindhoven University of Technology. In today's episode, we discuss psychology's replication crisis, an important topic of discussion for the last decade. We revisit a few key events that triggered the replication crisis, such as the publication of Daryl Bem's studies on precognition, the publication of the false positive psychology paper, and the reproducibility project. We reflect on how increased awareness of methodological issues led to changes in the way psychologists conducted research, and we also share personal anecdotes of living through the replication crisis. Enjoy. It is in vain to expect any great progress in the sciences by superinducing or ingrafting new matters upon old. An inspiration must be made from the very foundations if we do not wish to revolve forever in a circle making only some slight and contemptible progress. Thanks. So this is a quote aphorism um, 301 from uh, Bacon. Yeah. Who clearly wants to start from scratch. <laughs> I'm so glad we are doing a Bacon quote again because I was thinking, I was like, we have slowly moved on to very contemporary you know, readings and topics, but so nice to nice to go back to our roots. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to talk about this same sort of idea that sometimes, well, maybe not completely starting over, but there's a, a crisis. There's a crisis that makes us want to start from new foundations or at least right. a little bit more solid foundations. Yeah. And people are really confused about what to call it. I think crisis just sounds so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah like such an intense term and so there are some people like oh we should call it the revolution right it's the credibility revolution credibility revolution the psychology's renaissance i mean there's all these you know (laughs) there's all these like more optimistic terms so like or just yeah just not a big deal that's also a thing people call it like it's just not a big deal so maybe we can also talk about that regular stuff but what would you do you think it makes a difference like how we frame it because I would think that there are the mm. people who call it a crisis and the people who mm. sort of you know rang the the sirens early on thought that oh no we need to frame it as something that was terrible and kind of a big deal otherwise nobody would pay attention to it. So do you yeah. think that framing matters and or do you think like yeah we should if there is a problem and we'll talk about whether there is a problem mm. like we should frame it in a more sort of positive you know optimistic Give it an mm-hmm. optimistic mm-hmm. framing. Yeah. Well, th- this topic hits close to home because, yeah. I mean, I was. this is one of the things that uh, got me on the kind of research that I do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, mm-hmm. start, the start of this crisis. So I will just call it a crisis because I feel it was a crisis, personal crisis in any case. And we can talk about, you know, whether it's a field-wide crisis. But yeah. Do, do you want to tell us a little bit before? Yeah. Just to set the context of... Mm-hmm. What happened? When it happened for you? And yeah, and and then go sure. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We can do we can do a bit of a History. personal yeah. introduction, yeah. I yeah. guess. Um, so yeah, because I do remember, um, and we're really talking about a couple of events that mm-hmm. were happening around 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, 2012, maybe even. Mm. But in 2010, end of 2010, um, and this is maybe difficult to imagine because now you would just go on Twitter and talk to people about stuff. Right. But for some reason, I think in 2010, at least as I remember, it wasn't a big deal. There wasn't academic Twitter. So no. we weren't going on social media to talk about this thing. So you were just doing what we used to do then is go into the corridor to the coffee <laughs> machine. <laughs> yeah. And, and talk about stuff. And what happened was first that there was this circulating email mm-hmm. that hmm. there would be a paper that would come out in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology by Daryl Bem uh-huh. uh, about predicting the future. People have precognition. Uh, they have extra sensory perception. And this was a big deal because... A lot of people think JPSP is a prestigious journal. So the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology is deemed a very prestigious journal in uh, our field of social psychology. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, there was an email going around saying, oh, this paper is going to come out. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, before the publication, there were already some people who knew this was happening. And I think, um, yeah, we're just, uh, they had heard. So this is the gossip machine instead of social media. They were just emailing each other Uh like, hey, have you heard this thing? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And some people, you know, and those would spread it with other people and share it. And yeah. And it's just like I don't know. A couple of people in the corridor had heard about this thing, and uh, there was no information yet. So people were like, "Is this a joke? Like, is this guy <laughs> just joking? You know? I mean, is there was really April. No is April coming up? Yeah. It's just a yeah. April first yeah, no, publication. Yeah. But can I ask, were were you in a psych department at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, social okay. psychology. Social department. psychology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 This was somewhere at the end of um, doing uh, my PhD. I guess. Okay. Uh, nice. Two thousand ten. I just. Uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, people were just like talking, like, "Is this real? Is this a joke? Um, why are they publishing this? If mm-hmm. this person really thinks this is real?" And then we heard that the editor had said something like, "Yeah, you know, I mean, we just reviewed this like any other article, mm-hmm. and and given the methods that are used and the statistics reported, we we have no reason to dismiss this." Um, this wow. is just, you know, uh, unless we treat it differently than other things, just because it happens to be about a topic that we don't trust. But if this was any other thing, we would just accept it and consider it very strong, a very strong article because there were like nine studies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that was one thing, one thing that happened. And um, there are some consequences of this paper, of course, that I think are well known. But uh, if mm. I ask you to put yourself in the mind of the people who were reviewing this paper, I mean, surely mm-hmm. people like when they're reviewing papers will reject things because mm-hmm. or, 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 you know, recommend, you know, adaptations and stuff because things don't line up with theory. Things don't line up with. Right. I'm sure all those mm-hmm. reasons get used to sort of yeah. reject papers. So it, mm-hmm. it's kind of surprising that they didn't think that this was oh like it just so clearly violates you know like laws of physics like we can't yeah yeah <laughs> how are we going well, to yeah yeah you yeah, know you're completely right and i mean the editors did realize they had to say something about this so the editors huh. who accepted it so i think there is an editorial sort of about this paper explaining their reasoning yeah. and i don't think in this editorial and early on we already knew who reviewed the paper uh-huh. i think i only know one of the reviewers actually and mm-hmm. i know that this person cares about peer review being anonymous so mm-hmm. i won't mm-hmm. call their uh, name name them here but this is exactly the person who said like you would think um i read the paper there are the laws of physics yeah reject 
Mm-hmm. You know? So really just like, okay, this is just like theoretically impossible. Right. Uh, the paper doesn't give us any mechanism through which, which this could be a thing. So therefore we should just reject it because yeah. this is just theoretically impossible and we can't let the data overrule theoretical impossible uh, findings, yeah. basically. Yeah. But, um, but this is, of course, one of the points that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, very quickly it moved on from a methodological issue, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that's one of the first things that happened after this, that people started to think, so maybe it's something about the statistics and the methods. Mm-hmm. But of course, also very quickly, people started to say, what's the problem with our field that we are not driven enough by theory that we just let this this method overrun uh yeah. things that are impossible theoretically right. impossible that's also weird right so you that had very, very quickly yeah yeah very quickly a whole range of possible discussions mm-hmm. um so when uh, this paper came out one logical thing to do of course is to replicate the findings mm-hmm. right you're like mm-hmm. hey let's see if somebody can replicate it mm-hmm. and some people had done this and um, uh, we can link to it. Like uh, I, I remember Stuart Ritchie being one of the authors, oh, I guess the first author. Mm-hmm. And they had submitted this back to the same journal. Mm-hmm. And then the editor had replied, desk reject. Oh my God. <laughs> we don't want to be the journal of BEM replications. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you have something that many people already are upset about. Namely, this journal accepts something, right? Uh, that is clearly impossible or at least violates the laws of physics. So that's kind of upsetting. And then the moment we try to do what you're supposed to do in science, Mm -hmm. namely correct things and showing, well, Mm -hmm. we don't know what happened on that side, but we can't independently replicate it. Seems worth knowing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then the editor says, we don't want to be, we don't publish replications, direct replications. So what's important, I think, in the start of a crisis is that two things need to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. One is your rational thoughts have to get in some sort of conflict. Hmm. So rationally, you have to be like, okay, I realize there is a problem here. We can see that there's a problem here. But of course, you know, when you talk about changing behavior as a psychologist, having cognition is not enough. If you want to change behavior, you also need affect. You need an affective response. And there were a couple of things that fueled this affective response Mm. early on in the crisis. And I think it's very important that this was present. Mm. One is people felt really upset about this editor rejecting Mm. these replications. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. they thought, okay, this is just a violation of good science and what the hell is going on here? This is bad. Not too long after this, you had a a classic by now paper, false positive psychology. Mm Mm-hmm which uh, nicely combined a little bit of both the affect and the cognitive parts. So they very nicely explained to people who were not trained well enough in statistics. And this feels difficult to understand now because most people have heard about this so often that you're like, yeah, of course, p-hacking is a thing. But we didn't have the word p-hacking. The word p-hacking wasn't even in the false positive psychology paper. The word p-hacking didn't even exist in that paper yet. It was researcher degrees of freedom. Right. You know, but it was clear there's flexibility that inflates your type one error rate. And if you do a couple of these tricks, right. you can uh, really inflate your uh, error rate. And and this, why was there an affective response also to this paper? Well, first of all, they had a very nice joke. They introduced, you know, they wrote a paper with some nonsense finding and then they sort of 
went back in time and said, actually, what we did. So, you know, we yeah. actually analyze it like this and like this and like this. So that's funny. But right. the most effective response was actually in this whole list of things they say inflate your type one error rate. And everybody's like, uh, we but, all do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, that is stuff that we definitely like all of these things we've done. Sometimes we've done multiple of these things while analyzing a data set. Right. Holy shit. Yeah. And we were yeah. taught to do it, right? That's what you often hear is that it's not just that we did it. And we. it's like, no, this is how we were taught to do things. And it just, you know, was not something yeah. you thought was wrong, right? It's what meant to sort of explore your data and, you know, mm -hmm. understand what the numbers are telling you. Um, so yeah. just, there was well, just no, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? You don't think that's yeah. true? So, well, I mean, when I was a PhD student, mm -hmm. I definitely remember we had conversations. So on one, on the one hand, yes, we, this is the way people were analyzing data. We were definitely using flexibility right. in the data analysis, mm -hmm. right? You would analyze it like this or like this or like this. And I know people who literally said stuff like, you know, if the effect isn't in your data. You will not find it. You can't get it out of your data. Sort of like you can't generate things from nowhere. So if you find a significant effect, it is it is an effect. Which makes no sense whatsoever. But I remember it because it kind of felt like, yeah, that feels logical. But I think here's the thing. We wanted these things right. to be okay. And I also know that we had conversations where people were like, yeah, but you know, for this study, I really had to dig really, really deep in the analysis, you know? So we, we didn't think everything was okay. There were gradations of how far you had to go to get an effect. <laughs> and there we started to think, look, isn't this a little bit too far? Yeah. So it, it was clear that there was some sort of mm, limit, you know? Right. So it's not that we were completely oblivious about it. Mm. I think we sort of knew there was theoretically some sort of problem. We didn't know how big the problem was. And then it's also convenient not to actually open a book and learn about it yeah that's fair yeah but yeah. yeah so it's not completely that we're oblivious but definitely we thought you know yeah yeah or it wasn't yeah like it wasn't that clear that doing these things was wrong no. right or it wasn't clear we didn't put numbers on how wrong they were right and all of a sudden we have this false positive psychology paper right. that says well if you do this and this and this it is like a 60% yeah. type 1 error rate. And right. that people did understand. Right. You know? When right. they put these numbers on these right. practices, they're like, oh, wait, if we do this, you get a 60% type 1 error rate? Holy shit. Like that is way beyond what I thought it would be. Right. And and that is, I think, a bit of an effective response. And then maybe just one extra thing, which is important. And again, now I think you know, I think it's not that important anymore. But that is uh, in the Netherlands, there was a very big fraud case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dietrich Stapel. Um, and in itself, now we would probably say, yeah, but fraud is not questionable research practices or flexible data analysis stuff. It's a completely different category. So now we would probably keep them apart. But when this happened, mm -hmm. again, there was not a lot of social media. We didn't have a lot of background information about all these things. We hadn't thought about fraud and you mm -hmm. know all these kind of things so much. And this case came out, and for quite a long time, it mm -hmm. was unclear why this person was actually going to be, you know, lose his job and get all these papers rejected. Because 
was this was this just extreme p hacking is this right. fraud like now we we tell the story like no he was literally typing in the data you know right yeah so really creating fabricating data from scratch but for a long time it was sort of like um but is he just doing these things that a lot of us are doing and is this just the first case of many cases Oh my god. That must have been a scary time. Exactly. <laughs> I am pretty sure that in these let's say two or three weeks where yeah. there was quite a lot of uncertainty, yeah. if you would pick up the phone and try to call some people that maybe did quite you know, uh-huh. were sort of in the similar you wouldn't be able to get those people oh, on the phone because gosh. they were yeah. they were calling in sick for a week. They were sitting at home worrying <laughs> for a while, like, holy shit, is this me? And I'm in the next person around. Like the you know, now we look back at it and it's so clear. But mm-hmm. when, when you were going through it, it was so uncertain. Yeah. So I think there you get this feeling of a crisis, you know, because you're just like, holy shit, what's going on? Like we didn't know high uncertainty, clear that there's a problem. And then, yeah, you get in this, I think, uh, crisis feeling. You get a crisis feeling from it. That's so interesting that you say that, oh, the, like now we know that the, the sort of difference between fraud and sort of extreme p-hacking. But I'm like, I do sometimes wonder whether that line mm-hmm. is that clear or where that line mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. especially if you think about, well, the end result is just that there are untruths in the literature, right? The end result mm-hmm. is still mm-hmm. the same. And mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, and this might be a bit of a radical idea, but I've even heard even like, you know, researchers say that if they're they were doing a study when they were like in college or like even mm-hmm. like something, they were like, oh, I'll just say whatever, right? Like I don't pay attention. I will just put in some response, like, oh, did you, you know, not use your phone for that? It's like, sure, yeah, I didn't do it. And then it's like, well, so then isn't that also data fabrication, but at the subject level, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, and maybe you were just careless and didn't pay attention, or you weren't mm-hmm. super, you know, didn't code things correctly, right? You you still end up with all these things that lead to just, you know, the end result is still the same, right? There's something out in the literature where we think something is true and it's not. So the only Mm -hmm. thing that seems to separate the two Mm -hmm. seems to be whether the person knew what they were doing was wrong or not, right? It's sort of this Mm -hmm. intention, Mm -hmm. right? Even like if you're, right, even in the legal system, right? You have a difference between Mm -hmm. sort of premeditated murder and just sort of, you know, negligent manslaughter or something, right? Like the only Mm -hmm. difference, somebody's dead, Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the only difference no, seems right. some the difference only seems to be that <laughs> oh you you knew what you were doing were, was wrong yeah. versus not. Um. Whereas a lot of these people, I'm sure that were just panicking and maybe rightly so. It's like, but but did you think what you were doing was wrong? Right. To have knowingly done something you didn't think you should be doing. I think, yeah. which makes it very difficult, right? Because then how do you, you you don't know what people's intentions are, right? You don't know what they're no. thinking in their head when they're doing something. So like, how do you? Yeah, it's such a it's such a fuzzy, you know, yeah. fuzzy area to be in. Completely correct. And but just just to again repeat like your analysis is so much more advanced than what anything could have articulated in right. the first 2 years, right? Yeah. Because we we just didn't have the framework to right. think about this. But going on from there, I mean, you're completely right that this intention matters mm-hmm. and also the awareness do you know that this is wrong right. matters and maybe 2 years ago we had a fraud case in the netherlands a different fraud case mm-hmm. not that big but mm-hmm. still um where 
there was no blatant data fabrication like typing it in. There were a couple of things this researcher had done wrong. Mm -hmm. So there were clearly some ethical violations. Uh, I think I said a fraud case, but we had an ethical violations mm -hmm. case. And, and this researcher uh, was basically uh, reprimanded for a couple of things they had done wrong. Mm. But one of the things on this list was extreme p-hacking, mm. which was interesting because this was not on lists a decade ago. Right. Because a decade ago, we couldn't so clearly say, oh, clearly you, sh you should have known better. <laughs> yeah. But now, yeah, decade later, yeah, we've moved the line a little bit. And now we're starting to say, uh, no, you did this and you should have known better. So it's not manslaughter anymore. It's like <laughs> moving into, no, you, you premeditated this. You knew what you were doing. Yeah. So... And that's how these things go, right? With right. Um, the violations we're upset about. Like, yeah. yeah, they move over time. They're a bit dynamic. Yeah. You know, I will say this is a bit of a meta comment, but I, I do think that people don't give psychologists enough credit. They're like, oh, you guys don't, whatever. You know, you're not that useful. Whatever you do is not that great. Mm -hmm. But I will say, and I've seen, like, there's something to be said about even, like, giving labels to, to experiences, right? So even the term p-hacking, right? Nobody had that back in the day. But now we have it and it explains something and that's so useful, right? It's so yeah. useful to be able to say, oh, these practices, we have a name for them, right? Mm -hmm. It just sort of makes things more concrete and you, you can then discuss it and sort of think about it in a more concrete yeah. way, yeah. It's an interesting point because... I think what we're going to do today is only talk about psychology, right. our own field, which yeah. we know most about. So we're going to talk about the crisis in psychology, but we will see, I mean, if you go back in time, there are people talking about exactly the same thing, pointing mm. out problems years before. So now we're talking about 2010 or mm -hmm. 2011, but mm -hmm. we're really talking about papers written. I mean, yeah, basically going back through time, yeah. but, but also in other fields. And there were... Um, papers in medicine, for example. There's a very well-known paper that I think people have heard about by John Ioannidis, right. which is called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. Mm -hmm. That's not a very positive title. It's from <sighs> 2005. It's right. many years already before, you know, I mean, again, today we'll probably go back decades and decades before yeah. this, uh, before the podcast mm -hmm. is over. But, and, and this is more in medicine, you know, different field right. already talking about these things. So, but, but for some reason... Yeah, you're right. Psychologists, I think, have an interest in human behavior. So right. they have an interest in scientists as humans right. doing this kind of behavior. And then, yeah, maybe conceptualize a little bit. What are these behaviors and mm -hmm. frame it? And that is a useful thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then you were talking about the fraud case or the ethical violation case, um, but that mm -hmm. happened recently. Anything else happen back in the day when the crisis was ongoing? So... um. The next, I guess, important thing, so you have the fraud case, mm -hmm. um, is that, or, or one thing we did not mention yet, which is important, is that there were replications mm -hmm. of high-profile studies in psychology that were appearing. Mm. And that was new. So there is a study by John Barch uh, about elderly priming. <laughs> yeah. It's a very well-known uh, study now and one of the studies that, you know, you would talk about when you talk about the replication crisis. But from a personal perspective, I had a conversation with my PhD supervisor mm -hmm. around 2005 mm -hmm. just to get you in this, you know, world that we were living in. And my supervisor said, you know, there are some effects like this elderly priming study. Nobody thinks it replicates. But how could we show this? How could we show this, right? <laughs> you know what we need? 
we need some sort of international replication committee. We need people where we can send these studies to and say, you go and you replicate this to show that we, which we, what we all already think, this is not a replicable finding. And we don't think this because people have tried it. They've mentioned this at the bar at a conference. Mm. So people had, had an understanding like this finding doesn't replicate. But just the idea that the best thing they could come up with around 2005 was we need to create some sort of institution outside of science because no science can't fix this ourselves. I mean, come on. Like, what are you supposed to do? Publish a replication study? <sighs> it didn't even come up as a solution. Now you would just say, uh, how about you do a registered report? How about you do a multi-lab study with a bunch of people? Right. You know, we have all these words and terms and things we can do. No, 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 no. 2005, it was an impossibility that you as an independent researcher would be able to point out that this was a false positive in the literature, even though we all knew it. Isn't that yeah. crazy? That is crazy. And this, I mean, that's, you know, the publication bias, right? And the file drawer effect, you know. And just not publishing direct replications right. in our journals. Just yeah. you couldn't get it published. And so, so just to round this up like yeah. this one example right so i remember being at a conference somewhere in 2009 or something and there was this guy um stefan doyen mm. young phd student giving a presentation about these elderly priming studies mm -hmm. and he had done a replication mm. i'm like i'm listening i'm sitting in a room 2009 sitting in a room by this young PhD student talking about the direct replication of this thing that I knew my supervisor had once said, we need this independent committee, otherwise we'll never. And I'm so after the talk, I go to him and I'm like, wow, this is so cool that you did this, yeah. that you're presenting it here. It's uh -huh. so cool. You should really, you sh I mean, are you publishing this somewhere? Because you should publish this. Like, yeah, we just submitted it. Yeah. And then, you know, like 2011 comes by or something. And I thought, how how are things going with Stefan Doyen? Yeah. <laughs> so I send him an email. Yeah. Like, you know, the paper, you know, that you submitted. Where is it? Yeah. And then he was saying, yeah, well, you know, we tried it. But for some reason, oh there's a gosh. reviewer who really doesn't like this paper. And <laughs> it's being rejected everywhere again and again and again. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can guess. You can guess who the reviewer would be, right? <laughs> But then another new thing happened, which is the journal Plus One mm -hmm. started. So this is mm -hmm. an open access publication. There are, it's online. There's no paper version. They don't have a limit of the number of things they want to publish mm -hmm. because they can publish as many good papers as you submit. And they had decided that they would not count novelty as a criterion. So if it was a well-designed study, they would take it, which means that these people, after being rejected everywhere and everywhere and everywhere, submitted it to this new journal, mm -hmm. relatively new. I don't know how long it existed, but uh, anyway, they submitted it there. They didn't get one of the reviewers that they normally got. <laughs> and all the reviewers were just like, yeah, this is pretty insightful. This is an important finding, cited thousands of times. Right. Yeah, maybe we do want to get this replication out. Yeah. So that replication came out. and And people like... You know, you must imagine that before we were like, oh, we need some independent uh, committee to do replications. And somebody just went in a paper and it just published a replication yeah. of a, of a well-known finding in the literature. We just like, blown <laughs> in the literature. Wow, a failed replication published. Anyway, so that's, you know, it's difficult to imagine if you didn't live through yeah. it. But this was a shock. This was like, wow. Yeah. And and this was a big thing. And, and now it's interesting, right? Because we, we could completely forget about discussing what a replication means. 
mm. or what a field replication means. We mm -hmm. didn't need to think about this as a field because they never appeared in the literature anyway. Right, right. <laughs> so, so you don't have to think, what does it mean? Might it be that the method is wrong? Might the original be true and there's a moderator? We don't know. We didn't have any of those discussions for decades because mm. we never published them. But now, all of a sudden, we had to think, what does this mean? And of course, people have an opinion and they started to think about it. And some people right. said, I think there will be many things that don't replicate. Other people say, oh, come on, you're crazy. Of course, that's not going to be a thing. Yeah. And again, people had no clue. So discussion, 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 like, okay. And then in 2012, Brian Nosek thought, this seems like a really good time to do this thing that I've wanted to do for a while. Namely, we're just going to take a bunch of papers from the literature and we're going to try to replicate them. Yeah. And we call it the reproducibility project. We're going to get started because, hey, we have so much discussions about yeah. will it replicate? How much replicates? We have no clue. Let's go and take a look. And then, yeah, this started. So that's the next thing then, I guess, after this, we actually started right. to do the, that project. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. Oh, well, we should also mention, I mean, as far as I know, there was also the, Les, the Leslie John and... That paper, yes. right? That was very also very important of, right, paper. Right. Yeah. You want to explain? Yeah. Yeah. What it's about? N no. You, you you do the honors, <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> all right. All right. So so you have this bunch of things that people could do wrong in the false positive psychology paper, right. like dropping a condition. You know, you collect three conditions or four conditions, but in your paper you only report two or three, and one you just don't talk about at all, right. which feels pretty wrong, <laughs> yeah. but people admit to having done this, right? right. And uh, it's, of course, in the false positive uh, psychology paper because, well, these authors knew that there were a couple of things we were doing. And just from their experience, they draw some that they thought, yeah, these are problematic. So uh, Leslie John and three colleagues or two colleagues took a couple of these things, mm -hmm. which they dubbed questionable research practices. Uh, which includes things like data fabrication. So not all of them are equally questionable, right. but okay. Yeah. You know, problematic research practices. Uh, and uh, had a survey and basically asked, how often have you done this? Have you have you done any of these things at least once, mm -hmm. you know, somewhere? And then a lot of people said, yeah, 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 yeah I've done this. Yeah, I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. So that was also, I mean, people sort of knew, but all of a sudden, again, we put numbers on it. Right. And uh, of course, I mean, we don't know how representative and generalizable, but they were not nothing. Right. And even even that, everything got criticized, right? In this movement from day one, everything got continuously criticized. So this Leslie John paper, for example, got criticized. And uh, people, two, two researchers, Klaus Fiedler and Fritz Strack, mm -hmm. uh, who throughout this whole replication crisis have been... Uh, yeah, thinking, you know, maybe this is not really a crisis. Hmm. Uh, they said, yeah, but it's the way that you formulate your questions. And you asked, have you done this only once? That doesn't tell us how often they've done it. Mm. Maybe they've done it once in a decade. I mean, okay. And they tweaked the, 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 the questions a bit. And, you know, they did the same study. They find a little bit lower numbers. Hmm but still worrisome numbers, right. you know? It's not zero. It's right. not like it disappeared, the problem. No, no. I, so we don't know how big it is, but there is a thing people admit to doing this. So that was also very important. Yeah. Uh, because we kind of knew it, but now all of a sudden it was in the literature like, yeah, no, we really all, all seem to do this. Yeah. And do you think the people who were criticizing the whole movement or saying that, oh, it's not that big of a deal or, you know, downplaying maybe mm -hmm. how bad things were, how much do you think it was from actually thinking that, oh, you know, things are fine. This is just how things mm -hmm. work. We're just do you know, versus some form of like not wanting to change. Because, I mean, doing a lot of these things that have come out as a result of the replication crisis are, I mean, it makes life harder. 
right? As we talk about like having mm-hmm. to pre-register mm-hmm. things and having to do the data analysis in a certain way and sort of tying your hands when you're doing it. I mean, it all makes life a little bit harder. And I can imagine if you've been doing the same thing for, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30 years, that it's much harder, right? That's why I imagine more younger people are on board because it's like, okay, you're just starting out and you're, you aren't set in your ways yet, right? And so how much of that might just be people not wanting to change because they've just done things a certain way versus actually thinking, no, this is actually fine. Like, I would not mind changing, but I don't think there's this big of an issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we would have to do a meta-scientific study <laughs> and ask all these people what their motivations <laughs> were. But I think... Assuming even large... they know what, what they are. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there will be a lot of variability. But right. I actually think... Um, and nobody really minds... I don't, don't think anybody involved minds doing something if it would lead to better science. Hmm. But I think there were a lot of doubts about whether the problem is big enough to actually have to change anything. Hmm. You know, if this if this uh, elderly priming study doesn't replicate, well, a lot of people already had some criticism about, you know, how strong that theory was to begin with. So they don't really care. Mm. They're just like, let's mm. ignore that stuff. We can mm. just keep going on what we do because that stuff was flawed for other reasons. We don't I need pre- pre-registration. Mm. So, so that's one thing. People are mm-hmm. like, yeah, we don't know really how big the problem is. And even today. Uh, do we know how big the problem is exactly? Not really. You right. know, we have some numbers. We know we know it's not completely negligible, but right. we don't know how big it is. We don't know in which fields it is how big and which research lines. So right. anyway, so so I think that's one part of it. And the second is they also thought about negative consequences of it. You know, hmm. if you make life more difficult and it doesn't really get you anything extra, we just become slower and less productive and, and why? So. Oh, that sounds good to me, actually. That doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> but so then we're, then we're at the um, Reproducibility Project, which started around 2015. Mm-hmm. When did that start? Or that published in 2015. It's when did it start? It's published in 2015. Right? Mm-hmm. 2012, it started. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I so think so. Maybe 2011 yeah. already, but quite early. But somewhere 2011, 12, it started nice. um, recruiting people, asking if they ah, wanted to join, uh-huh. thinking about uh, which studies we should select and mm-hmm. i remember for example i mean just again a personal anecdote but um there are three journals that are sampled from in the reproducibility mm-hmm. project uh, the journal of personality and social psychology of course mm-hmm. i published mm-hmm. daryl mm-hmm. bem stuff the false positive psychology uh, paper was published in psychological science mm-hmm. which is very Another, well known right. for mm-hmm. and in that that time was very well known for publishing single kind of sexy studies <laughs> and then the third do you know what the third journal is no. In the reproducibility project, I do not. What, what would you guess? No, I, I can't say what you would you guess, but you, G- despite J-E-P? your good track record, oh, is it JP? Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, okay, you do remember. Good. So I, I don't journal... remember. I just guessed. <laughs> oh, oh, well, it's a journal of experimental <gasps> psychology, but okay. learning, memory, and cognition. So you also have Jeb General. General, yeah, uh-huh. that's yeah. a big one. But it's a journal of experimental psychology, learning, memory, and cognition, which is just a very peculiar choice, except. I had just published my first uh, single-authored paper, uh-huh. an empirical paper, uh-huh. in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Learning, Memory, and Cognition. Nice. And while we were brainstorming about the studies we sh- or the journals we should sample from, I said, you know what we should do? We have this JPSP, which is flashy and prestigious and mm-hmm. you know exciting, and, and we have uh, uh, sci- psychological science. We need to take a really boring, oh. rigorous, hmm. boring journal. And my experience at JEP Learning Memory and Cognition, and also my paper, I thought, was really kind of 
boring. Boring. But, you know, it made yeah. sense. It's uh-huh. good. It's one of the papers I like best that I've done. Nice. But, but boring. But also the review process, I thought, was just pretty rigorous. Nice. And I had published in Psychological Science where I thought the review process was a joke. Mm. Hmm. really a joke you get like two paragraphs like oh exciting work yeah cool I like it That's <laughs> that was a psychological science review and then I went to Jeb Learning Memory Creation and like pages of stuff I needed to do and checks and blah 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 nice. so I thought okay let's have this journal as a third one which is important well first of all it just shows you how randomly we sort of were thinking about hey what are we gonna do mm-hmm. right yeah. so everybody just threw in their own personal thoughts and opinions and you know other people will have their own stories about why we have done certain things just because they mm-hmm. wrote something online like hey how about we do it like this yeah um but this was selected but it is important because i think a lot of people don't know the background of how we ended up selecting this mm. and then you might remember that people have been writing about the difference in the reproducibility results of this project depending on social yeah, psychology right. and Cognitive, cognitive psychology. psychology and cognitive psychology was doing a tiny little bit better not mm-hmm. even statistically significant but who cares but mm-hmm. a tiny little bit better and then these cognitive psychologists how oh, we're doing better <laughs> it wasn't randomly sampled we picked this journal i picked this journal because i thought it was boring and rigorous and kind of probably more replicable uh. it wasn't a real test so these i uh, no, this is nowhere in the literature by the way mm. anyway so but this is it's a nice um, little backdrop yeah yeah, but this story. is how we how we got started. Mm-hmm. Like it was all mm-hmm. just sort of you know, yeah, random things thrown together on discussion internet fora, and um, and then mm-hmm. this project started. But I think uh, you know, of course, the result was quite impactful. Right and now, it's the number that gets used all the time. Right, it's thirty six percent. Yeah, uh, that that is that is also an interesting point. Yeah, you know. Because um, I will, I will grab the conclusion section from the reproducibility project, mm-hmm. right? Because people often say, yeah, "Yeah, you know, you said that you know this is the replicability rate and it is not high, so you basically made this into a crisis by saying it's such a low number, right?" Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of our fault now. Uh, but I just mm-hmm. want to say what the conclusion was, what we wrote down, because mm-hmm. I think people don't read papers anymore. But it, <laughs> it, the conclusion says, after this intensive effort to reproduce a sample of published psychological findings, how many of the effects have we established are true? Zero. And how many of the effects have we established are false? Zero. Is it a limitation of the project design? No. It is the reality of doing science, even if it is not appreciated in daily practice. Humans desire certainty and science infrequently provides it. Mm -hmm. As much as we might wish it to be otherwise, a single study almost never provides definitive resolution for or against an effect and its explanation. So this is what we wrote. Mm-hmm. We said, we don't know how much replicates. Yeah, sure, we have, an, we have a number here, but we right. don't know how much replicates. Yeah? Yeah. So I have heard, yeah, that people say that, oh, replications aren't don't really tell you anything about, yeah, the effects under a question. They only mm-hmm. tell you something about sort of the original research or the original mm-hmm. authors, like the way that that was done, or like how like how powered it was. So how much mm-hmm. of it, yeah, like when people are criticizing these replications on those grounds, like hey, we're not even learning about right. You're, we're wasting all these resources, doing all these things. In mm-hmm. some cases, I'm sure the original authors might have had some, you know, questions about oh, does it, you know, you 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 did this and we had actually done that, right? It was done in a blue room, you did it in a red room, so there's this, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. issue or. Or sometimes people even say that, oh, yeah, you know, if you studied something 
that mm-hmm. was sort of you know relevant at the time or things change right political orientations change and you know people's mm. opinions about these things change so maybe things aren't replicable for those reasons i mean yeah the kind of criticism that gets leveled against replications like i think come from all sides mm-hmm. right even more so than original original research um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how did yeah. you yeah like yeah, like how much how much was were you guys aware of at the time when you were doing it that that would happen or how much of it was just a result of oh yeah cuz nobody had done a replication project this big at the time so you, yeah. you didn't you didn't know yeah. like oh th- these are all the things that could you know come under yeah. fire. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, people were just doing these studies and trying to do them as well as possible, mm-hmm. but it was clear that sometimes like in my case, I chose to replicate a study from Jet Learning Memory Cognition. Mm-hmm. It's about visual perception. I had to show people matrices with colored dots and nice. nothing changed about this unless our eyes evolved in the last <laughs> decade. You know, it was just exactly the same, right. so it was yeah. easy. Yeah. And and you got the original material from the authors? I got mm, I got the original material. Um, nice. Yes, there were only just some some things that the original author also didn't know anymore, like the way it was randomized, mm. for example, was not discussed, mm. and and the original author didn't have the original program, so they were like, I don't know, I guess did we you know randomize it across blocks or within blocks? Anyway, it's just some details. Mm-hmm. But for some other people, the questions were much bigger about how to do the study because things had changed, and it's social psychology. So right. maybe you know a decade ago, people were asking about the president. Mm, right. Yeah, and now a decade <laughs> right. later, they have to <laughs> ask about their presence. So how do you resolve this? Or there would be, you know, sometimes mm. I think even slightly bigger things where a decade ago, maybe the most salient category of people was this category. And now a decade later, they're like, yeah, we can't ask about this. That's like outdated. Nobody knows like, mm. you know, this anymore. We have to update stuff about the material. And that those are, of course, the most questionable ones. Like, okay. Yeah, now we really have an argument to say it is not the study, it is the changes that had to be made because you couldn't replicate it exactly. Right. And and that's an interesting discussion. Again, a discussion we never had. Right. So so while we are doing these studies and designing these studies, we don't have, you know, all of the terminology, all mm-hmm. the background. The term auxiliary hypothesis. <laughs> Like, I don't think I had heard the term auxiliary <laughs> hypothesis or something, you know? Yeah. I think we learned about this stuff somewhere after, after doing all the, these things. After the thing. Meal talks about it, right? That's where I think I learned yeah, about yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but not things yeah. that, yeah, are commonly talked about, yeah, or would not have been very salient at the time, yeah. No, because also in this time, I mean, it's such a short time span, right? Yeah. Before we realized like there was an issue. So let's call it maybe two years, three years. Right. Like how much stuff were we reading? I mean, it wasn't even clear what the things were we were supposed to be reading. Now, if you say, hey, give me a reading list on open science or on research methods or on stuff. Hey, we ha- we all have now teaching programs and stuff. You can go. I mean, people didn't know what to read. Yeah. So it was just like we were discovering, rediscovering right. all this stuff. So anyway, we hadn't read so much. So I think, you know, as we were doing it people were just thinking very pragmatically like yeah i have to do a study we have to do this replication i have to make my best uh, judgment here Mm -hmm. well let's do it like this yeah and so there is a a many labs project Uh, Mm -hmm. i think many Mm -hmm. labs five four four or five i don't know they're they're five like a rambo movie now yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. well i think i think that that's it so they stopped (laughs) sort of although with even with the rambo movies you know or or indiana jones i mean maybe they'll come back um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they they did one study where they revisited some of the studies from the reproducibility project. Huh. 
where people pointed out like, hey, these are big differences. And and then I don't know exactly what the study, I think they consulted as well as they could with the original authors. Like, are we doing a good job? Try to replicate them again. I don't think it was a much bigger success. Mm. Um, so, and there's also questions about skill, for right, example, like are right. these people skilled or not? Yeah. A lot of these could be taken away by the original authors just going into the lab, doing a you know replication themselves yeah yeah and showing like yeah here we can get it again yeah. and again and that has been surprisingly rare there is one example uh, also based on the reproducibility project mm-hmm. i only know one uh, group of authors mm-hmm. who went in said no we think there's some problem there with the method i think the data they provide is not super convincing i think it's just significant stuff but okay okay let's give them at least a lot of credit for doing it right. and there's definitely some indication that it might have mattered. Hmm. So so yeah, we don't know what the percentage is, but it's not like it's not like everybody could just go in the lab and say, No, you messed up, I'll prove you wrong. Here right. is the data. No, that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Um yeah, but maybe people didn't feel like they needed to, of course. We don't know. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. But it's a difficult question. We don't know. We just don't know these kind of things. Right. Yeah. And so what was yeah, so then what 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 did that lead to like discussions of once this project was published in twenty fifteen? Yeah. So I think what people uh, probably don't uh, uh, give the reproducibility project the credit for is starting a discussion about how to think about what replications mean and mm-hmm. how to do them and how to interpret them. That was, I think, in my view, the most important mm. finding. Like, if we try to do replications and then we've done a hundred, which is not nothing, we really don't know how okay. to interpret them. And there's been so much work now on, for example, something that I really like is a paper on the um, constraints on generalizability. So it's a paper that says, you know what you're supposed to do as a researcher. You're supposed to say, look, I am making a claim here, scientific Mm -hmm. claim. We find an effect of this, but these are my constraints on generalizability. So Mm. if you're going to do this six six years from now, Mm. it's not going to work anymore. I don't think it will work because you give some reason, some theoretical reason, right? Or you say, look, I don't really know why it wouldn't work 10 years from now. If everything is the same, it should still work. So what has happened there, which I like, is they have put the responsibility of explaining failures to replicate, not not afterwards, like, okay, it was a failure. Now I'm going to come up with some moderators. It could have been. No. In the beginning. In advance, you have to say, my theory says it should generalize to these contexts and these, but Mm. not to these and these. And then we can do really good replications, right? Yeah. If we would have had that, of course, in the original papers, life would have been a lot easier, but we didn't have it. So, you know, but those kind of developments come from the reproducibility project, which is great for a field because now we can, or even the statistical interpretation, by the way, I was reviewing a paper today that said, yeah, some reproducibility projects look at the meta-analytic effect size. They mm-hmm. combine the original and the replication. We did this. We reported it in the reproducibility project. I didn't like it. Like I wouldn't have, I would have preferred not to have it in, but you know, 240 authors. So it's just like <laughs> yeah. the majority vote. So it ended up in. I don't think it's a good thing. But people are saying, is this statistically a right way to do it? The paper says, no, it's not a smart way to do it. Um, things like equivalence testing come mm, from this. Yuri mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Simonson has this paper, small telescope approach. Right. Like, how do we say if you replicate a study, you failed to replicate it statistically, which is equivalence testing. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, so all this stuff comes from giving 
giving replications a try and then being confronted with, wait, what does it mean theoretically and methodologically and statistically? You know, so it's yeah. huge. All the stuff that has happened. It's pretty big. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you agree, I, I do think that hopefully, like, either like looking at all this and even just doing a replication, I mean, I've done maybe just one replication, but it does, even if you're not going to put anything, everything in the report to be really meticulous about what you're doing so that if somebody mm -hmm. does ask you for what's done or like how you did things back in the day that you're sort mm -hmm. of careful about, you know, like, let's make sure that we have, we noted like how we did things, you know, mm -hmm. how things were randomized and what, where did stuff come from? Just so you can be super, you know, clear on what was done. And if you yeah. were to replicate or somebody else were to replicate it, you can, you can give the full, full information about you. So just being yeah. more careful in, you know, during the process of the research so that it can be replicated yeah. easily. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being more careful right. and also being like, you know, being able to justify certain right. choices. So one one outcome that, I mean, people probably don't associate with the reproducibility project, but is a direct consequence of it, mm -hmm. is that when I was emailing with the original author about my replication from mm -hmm. this JEP learning mm -hmm. memory cognition study, there was an email conversation that went, went sort of like this. I have to do a power analysis. I have to do a power analysis. The first power analysis in my life, of course, because... <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody was doing power analysis right. before, but we were trying to do a good power analysis. I mean, you know, it maybe took me a decade to write a really good paper about sample size uh -huh. justification. It took me a while to think about how to do it the best, and we didn't do it then, but we tried. We right. tried to do a power analysis. So I emailed this person. I said, I need to do a power analysis, and now I have my G power open, and I need to fill in an effect size. <laughs> An effect size. I don't know what an effect size really was, but I'm like, I need, I need an effect size, and you don't report an effect size. Now I know that I could have gone into this paper. They report an F test. Right. I could have computed Calculated the effect it. size right. myself from mm -hmm. the F test, but I didn't know anything about right. this. This guy emails me and says, uh, "I went to this online website. I typed in some numbers, and I got a number. <laughs> Here's the number." And then I took this number and I filled it in G power for the first time in my life, you know, very nice. And I got another number and that was the sample size. And at that moment I thought, holy shit, what the, what the what hell are we doing? doing? <laughs> like we are completely clueless here about what we're doing. We have no idea, you know. So I'm like, okay, I need to learn something about this, right. you know. Yeah. So let me try to figure out what this effect size business is. Right. And then when, when I written, when I had figured this out i thought a lot of people don't know, don't what know this is. so it. let me let me write this down and now i have this effect size paper published in 2013 mm. direct consequence from ah. my email with this person about the reproducibility project my effect size paper is cited almost as often as the reproducibility project like mm. seven thousand times or wow. something you know yeah. because a lot of people had no clue about how to compute effect sizes and i was clueless but i just figured it out so i could explain it to my clueless yeah. self from six months ago yeah which is apparently exactly the kind of writing style you need to explain it to people so they find it helpful right but this is also a direct consequence from the reproducibility project so the spin-offs right. i think are, are really mm. big if you think about it like that yeah no that's and i'm sure there are other authors that had similar experiences that led to other no doubt. right exactly exactly yeah. there must have been a huge amount of spin-offs like this from the project right i don't think we track anywhere but uh, at least in my experience there were quite yeah. quite substantial yeah. ones yeah that's yeah. great um so is that so so after 2015 crisis ended is that what happened daniel <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Well, I mean, it 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 really became sort of no. I think it started. I think I mean. So honestly, I mean, again, I think the result of the reproducibility uh-huh. project. I think um, we didn't do things like prediction markets or stuff again that didn't exist when we started, or maybe it existed we didn't know about it. But right. I think a lot of people were just surprised mm. how difficult it was to to replicate these studies. I think so. Right. So I think for a lot of people, this number, um, and again, there's a lot of debate about you know why why the number is so low and whether you should be surprised about it. But I think people were surprised about it. You know, I think many people just sort of naively thought effects in the literature are reliable. And if you do them again, we can do them again. And of course, it's not like people didn't have the experience of failing to replicate things, Mm -hmm. right? They would all start their PhD, try to build on some projects and failures to replicate were extremely common. But we didn't know how common and we thought it's probably my fault. Right. I probably did something wrong as a starting PhD student. If I can't replicate it, it must be me. And I think one thing that changed is that people are like, "Mm, maybe it isn't me. Maybe it was the study. Maybe the study was just not replicable, you know? And that awareness that that is a real possibility. Right. That also emerged from this, this project, I think. So for a lot of people, it was like, shit, wait. I mean, my study wasn't replicated or the one I worked on wasn't replicated, but maybe it is also the same issue going on here. So I think it really, uh, uh, really uh, spread uh, right. the awareness of the problem quite, quite widely. Even though, I mean, of course, it's also published in science. Again, a nice anecdote, by the way, that I think, I mean, at this time, I mean, there were open science people and I was like, why are we sending this? I, I thought, why are we sending this to science? Huh, Really? Because this is not an open science friendly journal, you know? Mm. And at that time, we just had like in 2012, we had this special issue in perspectives on psychological science. Um, uh, Bobby Spellman was mm-hmm, an editor mm-hmm, with mm-hmm, great mm-hmm. foresight yeah. and realized somewhere like, hey, this is going to be a thing. I'm going to ask some people to write a special issue about it. And the papers there, like all of them are basically classic papers. I mean, really yeah. good interesting papers that's a very good special issue and so she saw this was happening was there really you know at the beginning and um so when the project was done i actually said maybe we should reward journals that were really instrumental in creating Mm. awareness of this maybe we should send it to perspectives and psychological science for example um or we send it to one of those new open science open access journals or something but not science And, uh, and then we had a vote yeah, and I think a hundred people voted, uh-huh. and ninety eight voted for science, and and myself and one other person voted <laughs> against science. So then I went to science. So, but it helped, you know. Yeah. I mean, pragmatically, I think it helped that probably it had was more reach. There. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of yeah. people read it, and also outside of other disciplines, by the way, which is an important thing because right. we're talking about psychologists, and there were discussions in other fields, but I think. The reproducibility project really made this a thing where many other fields were thinking, hey, maybe we should also do a reproducibility project. Maybe we have some of those issues, the same issues that those silly psychologists have and stuff like this. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nullius in Verba. Our theme song is Newton's Cradle by Grand Brothers. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or comments you'd like to share, you can reach us over email at nelliusinverbapod at gmail.com or our social media accounts at Mastodon or Twitter. We apologize for the abrupt ending, but we said more on the replication crisis than could comfortably fit into a single episode. In the first part of the discussion, we talked about the current replication crisis in psychology 
and what we have learned about doing better research in the last decade. As we alluded to in this episode, there are several similarities between the current crisis in psychology and a previous crisis in social psychology in the 1970s. In the second part of our conversation, which we will release as the next episode, we will talk about the old crisis in psychology. We hope you will join us.